we, we actually do reviews on our clients every six months to 12 months. And I think if, if, a, if a client wants to find out, that's why just make sure you're in kind of that sort of program. If not, reach out to, to your broker or your banker or whoever it may be at least once a year or 12 months or six months, sorry. Uh, and, and just get an idea of, of the level of what the bank thinks your properties were. And, and the problem with valuations is, is as much as it's data-driven, sometimes too it could be subjective. Um, and also, depending on the data, it might actually be skewed to, against you or in your favor. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash.Insider, the auditory epicenter for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if you're interested in property investing, then you must be interested in finance because property investing is a game of finance. And joining me today to talk about finance is Honor Serrano from Lendery. Honor, how are you? Good. Yourself? Very, very well. So for the uninitiated, why don't you give us a kind of 60-second snapshot? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about Lendery. Basically, why should anyone care what you've got to say on this topic? Yeah, so um, I'm the principal lending specialist at Lendery. Uh, we're a, uh, I guess, a mortgage broken office in Alexandria. Um, I was originally part of a team that was uh, prior to Lendry that had uh, that was like the number one branch for a franchise. So I got to see a lot of different type of things that had happened, you know, during all the way from 2015 till now. Um, I then broke off and then started my own company called Lendry. A uh, bit of a funny name, but um, it sticks to some people. So. And since then, we've we've managed to grow our team, and essentially, we focus a lot on investor clients. Not that we don't service the other, you know, refinances and owner occupied, but I think our our bread and butter and where we really thrive is is allowing clients to grow their their portfolio, you know, from two, three, four, five. I think there's a general stats that I think ninety percent of of investors don't get past the first two properties. Um, I thought I would. Yeah. So, um, but we usually try to get those clients to, you know, the four or five properties. And that's where we thrive. I mean, we've won a couple of awards since then. Um, our office was nominated Best New Office, a um, couple of awards personally as well, Rising Star for myself. And essentially, what that's really meaning is not, not the awards, is that we can, I guess, walk the talk yeah. in terms of what we're Just proof to. that you actually know what you're doing more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, but. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the awards are there obviously for recognition, but also, you, you know, it's a bit of a, a flag to say, yeah, you, you kind of done what you, you said you could do. So, yeah. um, like the Habbix, outside, sorry, Habbix, the team. Uh, we've got, I think, 14 now, 12, nice. 12 13. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're growing. When, did you, when did you start Lendery? When did you start the business? Um, it was, it was in the, right, right before COVID, September 2019, um, and then December 2019, COVID, out of the, Years, hundred year pandemic, uh, no pandemic. I, I opened Lendery literally as a pandemic kit, so I thought it was, could have been the worst time ever. Hindsight, fast forward, it actually worked out really well. So as you know, property markets boom, um, and and clients just kept on buying. So, but going into COVID was not it was not great. So, but outside Lendery too, um, I own a couple of franchises, gyms as well myself uh, with business partners. Uh, we've even got in, we've even got a business in in Indonesia ourselves as well. Um, and, and I, I get involved with property myself as well. So, like at the moment, we've just purchased the site and we're trying to do a duplex site ourselves. So, I'm pretty involved in the lending, property, and as well as the business side of things, which when you put together, I guess, gives me an edge in terms of what, what I'm able to do. So, yeah, awesome. Love that. So, we obviously want to talk about interest rates, but before, before we get on to interest rates, I actually want to talk about finance strategy because. Where I think a lot of people go wrong is they don't understand 
the value of having a investment focused finance partner. It's the way that I think about it. Right, the mortgage broking component of it, like the actual broking of the mortgages, which is the um, let's go out to a panel and see what product is best. That forms one piece of what I see actually being actually a finance strategy, which is which is where I think um, an investment focused broker like yourself actually leans in. And so, what I'm actually interested to know from your perspective, because correct, you know, you pointed out 90 percent uh, of property, seventy one percent of property investors get stuck at the first property, another nineteen percent make it to the second property. That's ninety in total. Only 0.86% of property investors get to the fifth property, right? So less than 1%, which is, in my opinion, that's the biggest, like from, from Dashlot's perspective, like we are, we're on a mission to transform the way the world invests, but specifically, we want to help as many people, we want to help 5,000 people in the next few years achieve financial security, which typically means you're going to get to about five properties, which effectively means you need to become like one of the 1% property investors. And there's, that's really tricky, right? Because- the problem that I see is that 99% of property investors never achieve their goals because if you don't get to four or five properties, you are realistically probably not going to build enough wealth or cash flow or whatever to achieve the goal that everyone has, which is financial freedom. Now, buying properties is cool, but the biggest place that people get stuck is finance because if they can't get the money, they can't buy more houses. So what advice or uh, context can you add to this discussion around the difference between people who get to get stuck at one or two properties and different and or the, and those who get to four or five properties what's the difference from a finance perspective like anyone give you an example uh, i go to the gym a lot if you go to the gym and just rock up and start training with no plan nothing no meal plan no workout plan you're most likely not going to progress to where you want it to be so it's the same for property as in what you guys do but it's the same for finance as well when you when you speak to to a mortgage broker or i guess your bank or whoever it may be um, at the end of the day, you need to you need to to allow them to know what your your long term goal is. So that way, we can then plan forward for how you're going to get there. <clears throat> um, a lot of clients just say to me, hey, "I just want to buy an investment property, and that's it." Um, they come back, they come back, they come back, and next you know, we're we're now squeezing serviceability because we probably should have put them in a trust a little bit earlier, or well, not us, but anyway, the, the the trust conversation should should have come in a little earlier. They often tap out at capacity on the third property. Maybe fourth, if they're, if, if they're very good at it, maybe the fifth, I would say. Um, but I, I think having that plan in place, speaking to, speaking to a mortgage broker that plans out the right strategies moving forward and also actually visualizes that for you to be able to see how that works. Um, I had a client the other day, didn't even realize that he could use his equity to, to go into the second investment property. He's been saving money. So this whole time, he's got ample equity, half a million dollars worth of equity, but didn't even realize he could take equity out. So um, when we had a chat to him, he was really surprised around it. And I said, look, take equity out, put your money in the offset against your principal place resident, reduce that interest expense, focus on paying that down, and then leverage leverage off the investment, leverage off your property for the investment property. So I think it's just making sure you have a plan in place, a long term, whether it's two years, five years, or 10 years down the track, I think sit down and say, this is what I want to do. Mortgage broker will essentially run the numbers together. I often do this with my clients. And then I actually visualize how you could stack properties as well. And then and then ways you could actually reduce that in the future as well. So, I mean, that's kind of your area now in terms of yeah. going into buying properties and selling them. And, and so that's now let's talk about trust because there's a few things I want to dig into there, trust and equity and stuff like that. But let's talk about trust. Now, 
Anytime I talk about trust, I've got to make sure that we put a big disclaimer that none of this is financial advice. I am not licensed to talk about trusts or tax or anything like that, and I don't think your uh, licensing would cover that either. So go and speak to a professional if you're interested in you know exploring trust. Go speak to an accountant, all of that kind of stuff. That being said, a lot of advice that gets given about trusts broadly is buy the first few properties in your personal name, then once you run out of borrowing capacity, then go and start buying in trust. That seems to be a general narrative. So buy like one or two or three properties in your, in your personal name, then start buying in trust, which is all well and good, except the investors that I know that have gotten beyond five properties, typically beyond five properties, they're the ones that turn around and go, God damn it, we now need to go back and sell some of our earlier properties because we didn't get the finance strategy correct. And we should have bought them all if they'd know if they the, the typical thing is like if they knew what they know now they would have bought in trust from the start which is really really interesting now i, I, I want to get your opinion on that specifically and I'll, I'll just add in a little additional thing that for for the listener the way that i think people should think about this is if your whole goal is only ever to buy one or two properties then perhaps just buy in your personal name however if you have an intent even if you don't know how you're going to do it, but if your intent is to build a significant portfolio, so four, five, six, seven beyond, then you probably want to think about just going uh, trusts from property number one. I'd love your take on that topic. Yeah, so what I find, like exactly what you said, clients will come to us, they'll buy two, three, four properties and their capacity's tapped out and then they want to do trust. By that time, it's actually too late. Because you've maxed your servicing. So when you go for a trust loan application, they still have to factor in your income and your liabilities, but you've loaded all your liabilities by that time. So you're trying to get this 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 fifth loan or whatever it might be, but you're loaded with liabilities, you're actually struggling to service. My my thoughts around this is that people should be doing it much earlier, much earlier, whether it's the second last one or the first one, but they should already consider it in their mind because as, as you're probably aware, when you put a property under a trust, um, though there's no negative gearing benefits for the individual, you can you can isolate that trust as if that trust doesn't exist in your individual name, so that the lending in there basically doesn't exist under your personal name for the most part. You know? So can you explain? Can you just explain that just for the if someone's hearing this for the first time? Can you just explain that um, just kind of in more completeness for you? if someone's hearing this for the first time and they're like, what? trusts i can get more borrowing capacity what the hell like it's when 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 i first learned about this i was like mind blown that's the unlock that's how you build an unlimited property portfolio so if someone's hearing this for the first time what what do they need to know about this specific topic and then also uh how do positive and negative cash flows affect the this idea as well yeah so 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 the idea is when you buy a property under your name the liability and the income or the property goes under your individual name Problem with that is the more properties you buy, the more debts you've got, and the more the more debts you you stack on. At some point, you tap out. Usually, I find on the third property for most clients. When you buy a property under a trust, it's like setting up setting setting up a company. In essence, it is under a trust, and you're putting the load in the company or in the trust, and that allows that debt to sit in the trust and not under individual name. So what that essentially means, if you've got one property under your name today and you get another one under the trust and you go for a third loan, that second property, in theory, for the most part, does not sit under your name as a liability, meaning it's like you've got this $500,000 loan trust. It doesn't exist because it's not in your name. It's under a trust or a corporate trustee. 
what that does is essentially it's freeing up capacity. It's like stacking properties together and you take one of them. It's like stacking blocks together and you take one block out and that block is the debt and you've got less stack debt, essentially. The more trust you've got out there, essentially the less debt you've got under your indiv individual name. Yeah. The biggest issue with that is you've got to make sure that the, the trust itself is running at a, hopefully for the most part, is it cash flow positive or is it positive gearing? A lot of lenders, if you can't prove that it's cash flow positive or positive gearing and it's negative or negative cash flow, some lenders may add it back into your individual name, therefore defeats the purpose of having the property under a trust from a lending perspective. Does that make sense? Um, essentially, you're isolating the debt by itself. It's not under your name, and you can essentially just keep going. That's the long-term theory. A little bit of a technical question, but there's a difference between profit and cash flow, right? And so, so to contextualize this, so you basically set up a company, right? You have a trust, and then you have a trustee company. So you've effectively created a property investing company, and just like you could have any other company. And then the company buys the properties, not you individually. So then the company owns the properties, the company owns the debt. Brilliant. Um, but there's a difference between profit and cash flow. And if you could prove profitability, would that also help the trust to self-service its own debt if you can show profitability or does it have to be positive cash flow? They tend to look for the profitability because the, the cash flow, as you know, like in any property, there's depreciation, for instance, yeah? So let's, for instance, you have, you have 10 grand cash flow positive on this property, but your depreciation is essentially 15 grand. So in essence, you're actually, you're actually not making a profit under that trust or under that company. So you're actually making a loss. So again, the purpose of having a property under a trust is that you want it to be self-sufficient, but how is it self-sufficient if it's making a loss on paper? That's usually what the bank's stake. Even though logically, cash flow-wise, you're actually, you're positive. Yeah. Yeah. So, but also the inverse can be true as well. You can be negative cash flow and positive profit. So correct. Yeah. the moral of this story is make sure you get a bloody good accountant, right? That's the moral. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and a really and a really good quantity surveyor for your depreciation strategies. So. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Awesome. Um, okay, awesome. I love that because I think it's a really big unlock for people. And I think that when you're thinking about the finance strategy, you've got to think about all of this in a holistic sense. It's not just like, can I get the best rate? It's like, what's my financing structure? What's my portfolio structure? Who have I got the right people on my team to make sure I can get to where I want to get to? I want to talk about equity as well because you mentioned um, that you had a client come to you recently and they didn't even know that they had equity in their property. Or they didn't even know they could use it. So the interesting thing about real estate, unlike shares, if you've got shares, most people have got a share trading app. And by the minute, you can kind of see what value of your shares are and you can just perpetually have heart attacks as they go up and down all day long. The problem with real estate is you typically don't know what the hell's going on with it. Is it up? Is it down? Have you got equity? You know, like, how does that work? You don't really know. You just know you've got a house. So if someone's, um, what advice would you have to to someone to think about, like, maybe they've got equity in their property. Like, when they when should they start thinking about this? Should they just, like, every week come and knock on your door and say, hey, have I got equity in my property? How does someone go about thinking about tapping into the equity in their portfolio or even identifying if they even have any? Um, so I guess for... For us, and I think it's something you guys do, we, we actually do reviews on our clients every six months to 12 months. And I think if, if, a, if a client wants to find out, that's why just make sure you're in kind of that sort of program. If not, reach out to, to your broker or your banker or whoever it may be at least once a year or 12 months or six months, sorry, 
uh, and, and just get an idea of, of the level of what the bank thinks your properties were. And, and the problem with valuations is, is as much as it's data-driven, sometimes too it could be subjective. Um, and also, depending on the data, it might actually be skewed to, against you or in your favor. So there's, there's, des- there's different types of valuations. Uh, there's desktop valuations, upfront valuations, there's curbside valuations and so on. But the idea is get a valuation on your property and just, just get an idea of where it sits today. Um, and and if, it's, if it's increased from the previous, then all that really means is that the value of the property is increasing, meaning that your equity is increasing, and then you can tap into that equity. So for, I think, first-time purchaser, um, I would say around that 8- to 12-month mark, just get an idea, yeah? For an investor who's going really aggressive, usually they would like to, to reach out every six months. And and speculators, I, I think maybe once every six, the 12 months, 18 months, that's usually the change. I mean, my, I've got clients that call me every three months to say, can you value my property? So, uh, but they're very aggressive, you know? So, but I think six to 12 months is more of a realistic time frame. So, yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah. So we, we, we do, as you mentioned, we do that with our clients as well. So we do... Um, every six months, we do valuations, rental appraisals, buy, hold, sell reviews, all of that kind of stuff to kind of keep people on track. And we found that we were doing it quarterly. That was too much, you know. And you know, six every six months seems to be about the right cadence to kind of keep people moving uh, forward in the right direction. Let's talk about interest rates. Interest rates have obviously gone up a lot over the last, you know, eighteen months or so. How has that affected consumer sentiment or borrowing uh, sentiment? over that period of time. Do you, have you seen it have a big impact or do people is it only impacting people's actual ability to get debt? What's the impact you've seen? Uh, more it's got that as well. It's 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 reducing people's borrowing capacity. So as the interest rates go up, essentially it means your borrowing capacity gets reduced. Uh, I think we did a rough calculations based on from when you started to when the interest rates started to till now. Those depending on how much debt you've got. Um, some some clients' borrowing capacity was reduced by about thirty five to forty percent. So, which is, but again, yeah, it's a, that's the difference of you buying one point four million dollars to to one million today, as an example. So, there's that. But also, what I, what I'm finding is a lot of clients are now strongly focusing on cash flow. So, when you were getting two percent interest rates, I mean, cash flow for the most part, if you've done the right yield calculations, you, you're going to be okay. But when you're looking at interest rates today, at like say an average interest only rate at about six and a half percent, maybe even close to to seven percent, it becomes very difficult to service that loan or repay that loan, and your cash flow negative when your property is renting for three percent, as an example. So you know Sydney rents, I think three three percent, if you, you know three and a half if you're lucky. Um, but then you've got properties obviously you know down in different states that yield quite. Quite much higher. Five, you've got five percent, five and a half, four and a half percent, as you're probably aware. So now I'm finding that the key, the key discussion all the time now is not even about interest rates; it's actually cash flow, rent versus what what, what the outgoings are. Interest rates always going to be really important, but if if you know if you if you're going cash flow negative fifteen hundred dollars a month, do you want to sustain that? That's usually what I'm finding, and then that then trends towards more purchases out. In different states where the yields are higher, you know you've got your your Adelaide, your, your Perth. You know, uh, I think Perth's going through a boom at the moment in terms of you know, the developments or, or what's happening down there, rezonings and things like that. So the yields are quite good. So I'm seeing less and less Sydney investor purchases. Even Queensland's not as great as what I what I'd seen it, what I used to see it about two years ago. 
and now it's focusing into where that you know that property price bracket anywhere between four and, and five hundred to even six hundred with a higher yield. So that's what I'm seeing because people just don't want to take money out of their pocket every month. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting, right? Because obviously um, cash flow matters massively, but what what I've kind of seen is that people have almost lent too far in that direction because they're going, oh, well, I just don't want to have to, you know, they got high on low interest rates where it was basically you, you almost couldn't not have a cash flow positive property particularly yeah. because it just, if it was interest only, right? Like it was Which very- was never going to be a long-term thing, yeah? Yeah, but, but people yeah. got used to it. Like for a lot of people, they got used to it really, really quickly, bearing in mind that, you know, that we had unprecedented low rates, like genuinely unprecedented low rates. These interest rates we've got at the moment, they, they're not unprecedented. In fact, like, yeah, not that long ago, like these were the, this was the norm. So, yeah, so, but the, the the point is, though, that a lot of people kind of got got into the party when interest rates were really low, and they're like, look, all of this real estate is cash flow positive. How good? And now that uh, interest rates have gone up, they're basing their investment decisions, their wealth decisions, on whether or not the property is cash flow positive versus whether it is actually the right property for the strategy. Now, we've developed a bunch of technology to actually help people plan this out. We call it a portfolio growth plan to help people navigate through this because it's super interesting. Because on face value, if you don't have a plan, if you've got no optics on a whole portfolio view, you could be like, why the hell would I want to buy a property that's, let's say, I don't know, 10 grand a year negative cash flow. But if you can see how that fits into a whole portfolio, doing that now might actually still get you to your financial freedom goal in the next seven to 12 years. And I'm seeing a lot of people that are making suboptimal investment choices, either to not invest, oh, it's too hard at the moment, I just won't invest, or I'll only buy a property if it's positive cash flow, which subsequently may mean that they're going to buy a suboptimal property in a suboptimal location that's not actually going to fit a strategic plan. So they're making suboptimal investment decisions by putting cash flow on the, you know, on the on the you, you know idolizing cash flow too much and say well that's that's the only metric on which I'll assess whether or not this is a good purchase or not how do you what would your kind of guidance be or thoughts on that to someone who's kind of in that mindset of like oh but 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 I've got to, I've got to buy a cash flow positive property like what would you kind of say to that well cheap is not always the answer i mean uh, that's what i think anyway you're right so people people are focusing on their cash flow what ends up happening is they they make they do the numbers and they suddenly now looking at some 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 property three hours away and it's three hundred thousand dollars, but has no future growth. Which can be good, just to be clear. It's not about the price point because because right? it's like we bought three hundred thousand dollars properties that have doubled in like two years, right? So but it's not about the growth. Yeah, yeah, growth. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But the, yeah, they doubled the doubled in growth, right? And also rents have gone up as well. Like so, just to interject, I don't think it's so much about the price, but you can still end up buying some because if you push it to its extreme. By the way, sorry to interject on 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 your point here. If you push it to its extreme, what you end up doing is you end up going to some far-flung, tiny country town out somewhere between the intersection of New South Wales, Queensland, and the Northern Territory and buying it because it's got an 11% yield or something, going, oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, and it's like, what is the basis for deciding that that is good other than yield? <laughs> yeah, what's the metric? Is, I mean, is, is, that, is that area going to have population growth? Is there infrastructure there? Is it? Whatever, whatever it might be, so that you're right. So that's what ends up happening. That they're choosing cheaper properties, going into areas they've never been into, and I think it's just them guessing. 
And I think it could be very dangerous. Uh, if you go into an area that has, I mean, the worst case scenario is probably a mining town. You probably hit Kalgoorie in, in, you know, years ago, people bought in $500,000 and probably it was worth 300, 250, 200, 185 when, when the mines basically just moved out. So, but whether they were focusing on cash flow or not, I'm not sure, but that's kind of the potential loss that you could make if you're choosing the right the wrong property if your main driver is only the cash flow so in reality sydney's cash flows can always be terrible I, I, you know there's some pockets of sydney but i'm sure so but yeah choose choosing choosing not just on cash flow should not be the main strategy so yeah i think you actually need to have a strategy is kind of the point yeah you know? <laughs> like you got to actually have a plan you actually got to have like a, okay what am i doing why am i doing it how does this specifically help me to achieve my goals. So at the moment, look, we, we have as a, well, we're obviously working together and you've obviously got a pretty good sense of the types of properties we're buying for, for our mutual clients and all that kind of stuff. But over the last few years, Dashdot's had a specific bias towards buying in regional locations, not because, you know, not for any other reason that it was the best places to buy. That's it. It was just, it was literally, that was the best place to buy, which was proven by the fact that the capital city market, Sydney, Melbourne, et cetera, you know, they went up and then they went down again. And we could see that happening a mile off. So we were like, okay, let's not do that. But broadly speaking, it's like, I don't have a problem with capital city markets. I think Sydney can be a great market. That we're, for example, right? And Melbourne could also be a great market. Where people come unstuck, though, is not actually having a clear understanding of how to navigate the constraints in their portfolio. So the constraints that anyone faces in their portfolio is access to capital, access to debt, access to cash flow. And the cash flow can also be their income or any other kind of uh, income source, not just their, the real estate. And so if you can, if the timing is right and you buy the right property at the right place at the right time, and if that location happens to be in Sydney, and if that if that does not cause you to hit one of your constraints, i.e. to be able to stop, to stop you purchasing more properties, that can still be a good decision. And so I think people get... Uh, concerned or and I'm, I don't know a property in city is probably going to be more negative than 10, 10 grand a year but just just for the point of an example they're like oh the, the property is going to be negative by 10 grand a year or a thousand dollars a month that's terrible I don't want to do that it's like but yeah it might cost you a thousand dollars a month this year but as rents go up that number is going to go down and also you might make a hundred thousand dollars in growth on that property so you're telling me that you're not prepared to you're going to suck. You're not prepared to sacrifice a thousand dollars a month to make a hundred thousand, to make ten thousand dollars a month, or eight thousand dollars a month. And so, I think a lot of people lose the the point of investing. The point of investing is not instant gratification. The point of investing is to stack long term decisions in a way that is going to help you to achieve your goals. But understanding that, understanding like, hey, before I go and buy this, go speak to my finance strategist, right? So my, my mortgage broker and go, hey, if I do this, am I going to screw myself over? Like, am I going to be able to never borrow again if I buy this? Or, you know, and also speak to speak to a property specialist. So um, I waffled on a little bit there. Do you have any thoughts on that topic? No. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 pretty much bang on. Like, I think solely cash flow decisions, um, then you, you might as well go out and buy a $250,000 property that's going to give you $400, $400 rent. But yeah, yeah you, and that be that be the only metric that you look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that's the only metric you look at, it's a very dangerous. It's a very dangerous view viewpoint. I think uh, there's there's areas that's done really well where the rent wasn't quite there, but property the property market had done really well. But you're right too. People forget that what happens over time with rent, rent goes up over time. Yeah, like what what we what were you paying rent 15, 10 years ago? It's not like it's going to remain today. 
And if they can hold on to that, and if there there is some sort of sense of capital growth in that area, then you got to weigh out the option of okay, do I take it? Do I do I take a little bit of a cash flow hit for a potential, you know, twenty percent, fifteen percent, or whatever it may be, gains in the next couple of years? Um, and you have to factor that out holistically into your, into your strategy. Just can't leave one point of item, so which is can't just be cash. But that's what I'm seeing. Unfortunately, that's because you know it's, everyone's kind of like in this scramble mode. It was like, oh, I want to get the the cheapest rate, cheapest whatever it is. But also at the same time, saying, well, I want to borrow more, but I want to get the cheapest. But it's not really the main strategy you should be looking at. So it should be a holistic points set, set of points that allows you to move forward. Yeah, it's kind of like the the question is like. Are you better off to get lower rates, or are you better off to get more debt? Like, is it is it access to debt, or is it or is it lower rates? So like, what's the better solution? And my my advice would be to optimize for not getting stuck. You can have the lowest rates in the world, but then also you might not be able to borrow any more cash, in which case you can't buy any more properties, in which case you can't grow your wealth. Or maybe you could pay a higher rate and then actually still be able to get access to credit and therefore go and buy more properties, which subsequently is going to move you to your goals faster. So by optimizing for the wrong outcome, you can. Really, you can add decades onto your wealth strategy just by making a kind of short-term decision like that. Yeah. When, when clients come up to me and ask me about getting the best possible interest rates, but I also want to keep going, but they don't have the capacity to go to that bank that gives them the best interest rate, it becomes a pointless task. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. You mentioned you, you, I'm on a bit of a fitness uh, fitness journey as well, and it's kind of like, it's like it's like people who want to bulk and cut at the same time. It's like, do you want to get? I want to get as big as possible, and I want to lose a heap of fat. I said, well, which one do you want to do? Like, which one? Like, do you want to go? Do you want to get bigger, or or do you want to get leaner? Because I mean, you can sort of tread that line a little bit, but like broadly speaking, you you, you got to go. Well, what's more important? What's more important to you? Just yeah, a little bit of sort of you go, you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just as a little side note, I read about a town in Germany where the rent hasn't gone up since. I think like 1605 or something like that. Like they, they built this like they built this town and like part it was like mandated that the rents could never go up. So I think people pay maybe it was like 1805 or whatever. I think people pay something like I don't know. It's like less than a hundred, less than a hundred uh, euros a year <laughs> for rent. And it's a whole town. Like they built this whole village. It's like a it's now like it's an awesome like social housing kind of project. But it looks beautiful. Like it looks like it's like. You know, gem, quaint German village and stuff. And I'm like, man, that's that's awesome. So, but unfortunately, we don't have that. Uh, well, actually, fortunately for investors, that's not happening. Uh, yeah, you won't have growth there. No growth. Yeah, yeah. There would be there would probably be no growth, and also your rents aren't going to go up, and like you'd probably be not a great investment for you to have. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so where do you see interest rates going? I mean, as we record this, it's the second of November, so that's going to date the podcast a little bit. But I think it's useful because there's about to be an RBA announcement. What do you think it's going to go? Uh, in, in the short term, um, my personal opinion is there's probably going to be about a one, possibly two rate rise, and I hope not. But in reality, I think that's where it's coming to. Uh, but in the, I guess, more medium term, I think they'll, di- they'll dial it back. They have, they have, you know, they've held off for a bit, and I mean, the RBA has held off for a bit. And I think coming to next year, I think my personal opinion, I gave caveat around this, not a future interest rate forecaster. Um, I think it will hold and probably till the end of next year, as inflation hopefully comes back down, the the RBA may consider, in my opinion, reducing rates. If it's not the end of next year, it will be the following year. But I think for the for the short term, I guess in the next 12 months, we're probably just going to hold where we are. Um, there's looming there's looming discussions that rates would be going up next month. Obviously, we you know, the quarter inflation up. 
Um, but I mean, I, I think there's always going to be one or two in, in, in you know the next three months, my personal opinion. So yeah, it's interesting. A lot of there was a lot of discussion uh, when rates started going up that the property market was going to crash because of uh, rates. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Like we saw Sydney, we saw Sydney and Melbourne pull back a fair way, but broadly speaking, that hasn't happened. I mean, our clients on average have gotten I think, nearly eleven percent growth over the last twelve months. When uh, you know, when the rest of the market's done about three percent or something. So, what's your point of view on what's going to happen to the real estate market over this period of time? Let's say, do, do you think it's going to over the next couple of years? Do you think it's going to continue to go up, flatline, go down? What's your kind of point of view on that? Well, at this moment, feedback I'm getting, the data I'm seeing as well is that properties are flying off the shelf at the moment. So. Whether that's probably because it's getting hotter and people, you know, investors come back in as, as you know, as spring comes in and it gets hotter and then it takes off and comes back in Feb. From what I'm seeing, whether whether it's maybe a slight low stock volume, um, properties are still increasing from what I'm seeing. In fact, pre-rate pre rises, I think the median Australian house prices has met, it's back to that, I think, 750 mark, maybe, Australia, I can't remember, but it's, it's the same number now than it was pre-rate rising. So it's actually climbed back up. So um, I think there was a there was an article that came out yesterday. I can't remember, but during between now and let's say the end of next year, I think it, it will still creep up bit by bit. I just don't think we're going to see that growth that we had during obviously post COVID or during COVID. Um, I, I personally don't think it's it's going to drop. That's my personal opinion. So, but whether it flatlines or it goes up, that's probably the trend. It's probably going to trend towards up, but just not a substantial increase that we've seen in the last couple of years. So I think you wouldn't want that anyway, to be honest. that's That was insanely crazy. Timely, People. unhealthy, unsustainable. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not sustainable. sustainable. No. So yeah. you, want it, you, want it to be, you want it to be that reasonable increases in prices. So. Yeah, 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 totally. I was, I was worried when it was um, – I was like, man, this is like – like cool if you're investing, but far out. Like it was um Yeah, so we, we purchased in an area in an area down the south coast and when it started, property prices were five hundred, five fifty, five you know. Then now today, well, at one point you see the mill. So which is good for me because we jumped in that property in the market. But I'm thinking this area for a million, it's like that's I mean, we're talking about we're talking about two hours down the two hours from Sydney. So down the south coast and and now I'm seeing properties selling land and home packages, which to be honest doesn't seem like it's moving as much. Um, then they're selling for one point one. So, but if you if that kept on going, one point five would be very close to you know to to the next the next norm, which which is not realistic for that area. Yeah, yeah, not realistic yet. I mean, over time, but like yeah, over time, of course, as as wages increase and and you know the normal economics happen, uh, but not 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 price increases and. Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting because a lot of people, you know, had this belief that our uh, interest rates are going to go up and all of a sudden all these people weren't going to be able to afford to own their homes and there was going to be fire sales and blood in the street and the market was going to crash and all of this kind of stuff. And you know, I was say from the get-go, I was like, that's nonsense. Like people just won't people will sacrifice a lot of things before they let their house go, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think we're like we're like what over halfway through the the you know, the the mortgage cliff, you know, that oh we're gonna go over this cliff and everyone's Mortgages are going to roll over to uh, to variable, and oh my god, it's going to be a. We're like over halfway through that, and it's like literally nothing has nothing's happened, and the problem is it's stock on market, you know. So there's a tremendous amount of active buyers, whether they be 
uh, homeowners that are seeking to buy a home or investors. And just for everyone listening, there's always more homeowners than investors, by the way. Homeowners move markets far more than investors do. Investors make up such a small percentage of total property purchases and property ownership. Like it's never, it's ne- everyone blames, well, investors are driving the prices up for first home buyers. It's like, no, no, it's homeowners. Like investors are riding on the tails of, of homeowners. Investors are actually providing rental properties, right? So it, it's good. But what's, what's interesting about that is there's a huge amount of buyers and there's bugger all properties to buy. Like we're at record low levels of stock and that's because people don't want to sell in the current environment, which that's really interesting because what that does is that in that basically forces prices up. We've got a huge amount of immigration. We've got bugger all building happening and there's almost no properties for sale versus the amount of people that want to buy them, which macro pushes property prices up. Now, let's just say interest rates flatline and uh, wages go up, right? Let's just not even, let's say the interest rate versus salaries equation starts to rebalance and people are able to borrow more money. Cool. So what happens then? Okay, probably more stock will come back on market because people will be like, okay, cool. I can now afford to sell this and, and also then go get more borrowing and go buy somewhere else or whatever. So probably more stock will come back on the market, which will actually increase buyer activity, which will also <laughs> push prices up again as well. And so you sort of got this like cycle. Yes, it's like, it's like I actually can't see, I, I can't logically, rationally see a way that over the next few few years, property prices don't go up macro. Now, of course, there's 15,000. There's actually, I've always said 15,264. There's actually, the, the, the based on the last census, there's 15,363 towns and suburbs in Australia uh, now. And so they're all different, right? Like they're all like you can't just say, "Oh, the Australian property market will do X," because you'll make huge mistakes. But some locations are going to outperform massively over the next few years, and it comes down to sort of the three basic elements, like lifestyle, jobs, and affordability. And if you can get those three things right, then then only the only way that I can see is up. Which is why it's so important to have these conversations because people need to kind of like recontextualize how they should be thinking about participating in the real estate market. It's not about the lowest interest rates. It's not even about cash flow. It's about continuity. It's about how can you put a plan together to actually help you to get from where you are now to where you want to be and participate because like it or not, I can't see any I can't see any path that isn't up. As long as you're buying in the right place, some places won't perform very well. So Yeah, correct. Yeah. And and I think if you look at just in general from I guess historical figure. The general, the general, the real, the real property price growth. So when you take out inflation, I guess um, there's the hundred year graph that I think the RBA has. Go, go Google it if anyone, if anyone can can find it. And it's it's trends up, trends up. Doesn't doesn't turn down. It trends up. So I mean, it's got obviously your peaks and troughs, but the general trend is up. So and, and I think Australian banking system, just to add to that as well, is very very safe as well. So it's one of the safest banking systems in the world. Um, I just heard. In America, apparently, they got what they call recourse loans. Yeah, no, yeah, no, they got no, they got non-recourse loans. Non-recourse, sorry, non. Yeah, non- yeah, yeah. They can literally just give the keys back, say, "See you later. I don't have to pay your loan." In Australia, we don't have that. It's your default. Your default's under your personal name, so everyone will avoid doing what they can to even get to that point. So, which I think adds a layer of protection for the banks itself. Um, yeah, so so I think Australia's banking system is one of the safest banking systems from from what I've, I've heard, I've read, and I've seen. So, which that that helps the Australian market as well. So, 100%, 100% agree with you. It's quite funny, actually. I did a podcast the other day with a guy uh, in the US. Like, I was a guest on on his show. And he wanted to talk about real estate. And I was like, okay, well, like, my main area of expertise is Australian real estate, but sure. But, um, but I was talking about that with him as well. And he didn't even understand that that was a core fundamental difference. I was like, the reason that the real estate market in the US is volatile 
is because of non-recourse lending. Because like people can get debt, and then if they just don't want to pay it, they can just walk away from it. It's 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 crazy. It's crazy to think as an Australian that you can just like get a property, you can finance it based on the property, not the individual, and then if you don't want to pay it anymore, you just walk away. Bananas. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes absolutely no sense. The accountability is not no longer an individual. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's awesome if you're like, yeah, there's lots of reasons that you can scale your portfolio faster in the US and Australia, but I prefer the stability. That's why the Australian Australian economy is like, because real estate is the largest asset class in the world, um, full stop. And so because we've got stability in our housing market, that's kind of one of the things that underpins Australia's economic success more broadly. A lot of people talk about things like recessions and all this kind of stuff, it's because they hear American news and they're like, oh, that must be what's going to happen in Australia. It's like, well, I don't know. The economic fundamentals are pretty significantly different between the two countries. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things that are tied together. Fashion, <laughs> you know, uh, pop culture, and even, you know, you tend to see if interest rates go up in the US, you might see them go up in Australia as well. But fundamentally, the, the underlying economics are different. And I think that if I, if I had one overarching point of view at the moment, it would be, Look, for some people, it's not going to be the right time to invest, and that's okay. Like, if you can't invest, like if you're not actually able to invest, don't worry, because there's going to be plenty of opportunities to invest in the future and to still make significant gains. But if you can, then right now you shouldn't be sitting on your hands, because, like, in my opinion, the only way is up. So, what advice would you have to people who are thinking about investing in the current environment before we wrap it up? I mean, I'll just jump in. To be honest, like. Like if, if you've been waiting this long, you tell me what prices were two, three years ago. You, you, you've waited way too long, you know. So again, example of that property, five hundred, five fifty. Um, I'll probably say it's worth eight fifty right now. I mean, this price has gone up a million. If I waited just to see when the property price was going to drop up, I would have lost three hundred grand, three hundred fifty. You know, so as an example. So, and again, the general trend, and I mean that general consensus of the seven to ten year property prices in Australia double. I mean, if that does come to fruition every single 10 years, then I think when we, when, why would you wait for another couple of years just to see how things are going? So, I mean, even if you look at prices today versus what they were five years ago, I mean, you just look at it vast differently. Vast, some, some areas are two and a half, two times, two times, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. If you could go in a time machine, if you could go in a time machine and go back even just one year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even just one year. Just would you can't, yeah. Yeah, pretty good. One year, just let me just buy the best Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So I think, yeah, my, my general my general thought around property is that it's uh, it's very safe in Australia. That's my 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 honest and humble opinion. The banking system is good. If you're waiting for the property market to go down, you're going to be waiting a long time. So yeah, hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. Oh no! If people want to reach out to you, if they want to get a bit of a get someone to have a look at their finance, their structure, all of that kind of stuff, where should they go? Uh, just website, uh, lendery.com.au, or just Google us, L-E-N-D-A-R-Y, um, and, and just reach out where they can. So Awesome. Love it. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate your insights. Good to Thank chat. You. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.